Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, I'm delighted that my guest today is Terry Young, the founder of Sparks and Honey, uh, which does, I mean, I think it's belittling to say they're, they're in the trends business, they do way more than that. And uh, that's what we're uh, talking about today, which work out what they're doing, what they're doing now, uh, how the company started, the process, all that other stuff, hopefully in the next hour we're gonna cover. Uh, before we get into that, I want to do a shout out to uh, Alexander Ray of Orcs, who is uh, helping me with uh, the technical stuff like sound recording um, that I am uh, inept and incapable of doing on my own. So um, thanks to Alexander. And uh, Terry, welcome. Good to have you. Yeah, thank you, Ed. It's, it's uh, great to be here and I'm, I'm happy that we finally made it work. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been months in the planning and finally <laughs> we got it to happen. Exactly. So, um, Terry, what I like to, do, like, like to do with every guest as a sort of kickoff to set some context is uh, for you to get the, take the listeners a little bit through your journey uh, that took you to the idea that you were going to create Sparks and Honey. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess we'll, we can rewind in time. Um, I... Uh, Grew up in Kentucky, small town, made my way uh, to, to Texas into the advertising industry. Um, got involved in an internet startup very, very um, early on. Um, and from there, uh, stayed fairly focused on internet technology, uh, digital, uh, until I was uh, pulled into McKinsey, uh, left the US, went to China, worked um, at McKinsey for a year or so, uh, made my way back to the U.S. and uh, re rejoined um, Omnicom, uh, which is where, uh, who owns Sparks and Honey today, and uh, eventually made my way to New York, um, ran an agency um, out, of the, out of New York, part of Omnicom, and then about eight years ago, I um, built the and wrote the business plan for Sparks and Honey. Um, I had left Omnicom. I wrote the plan, and I was uh, fortunate enough that Omnicom looked at what I had put together and was like, "We don't have an agency like this. Um, we want to fund uh, this company from the ground up." And they put the funding behind uh, Sparks and Honey, which is a very unusual uh, situation. And I mean, typically, if you're familiar with big holding companies, they make acquisitions and 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 pull uh, companies into their portfolios. So that's the way it, it came about. I mean, my my background is a combination of technology, uh, data, and um, strategy, and really, Sparks and Honey is a blending of those three. So, so what was it that sort of said to you? I need to do this. This is the time is right. The technology is right. The need is there. What was the sort of a, was there a spark in the sparks and honey? Yeah. So probably eight years ago, you know, the things, if you, if you can rewind to that, that period of time around 2012, I mean, what we were seeing is uh, an incredible amount of new data sources starting to emerge. We were having much better technology to make sense of that data. And we also had a, an, advertising industry that has always been culture focused. I mean, that is what we tap into to create these uh, emotional connections. However, the model was, I think, very broken. It, it was 100% people oriented and it was, you know, uh, a copywriter and an art director and, and a few individuals getting in a room and coming up with these great um, ideas that would, that would create a campaign. And Number one, I thought the model uh, was not going to last in, in that format. Number two, we just had new tools that we had never had before. So I, I took those concepts and uh, began to write the business plan for Sparks and Honey, which was basically 
Um, how do we use technology and these new data sources to tap into culture at scale and make sense of what makes humans tick, where the world is going, and quite honestly, uh, asking the question of can culture in its broadest sense be structured, quantified, and then uh, leveraged uh, in order to drive um, a whole series of outcomes. And, and when I first started, those outcomes were primarily focused at, at advertising and marketing type of issues. So yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. So in, in, uh, when, when, when Omnicom bought you, did that, I mean, obviously that gave you like financial stability investment, you know, you, 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 you started off on a firm footing. Did it also, introduce you to clients immediately was that you know it's, it's such a i think i could probably write a book on this particular topic it's such an interesting um uh you know situation in that you go into a holding company and anyone who's familiar with holding companies the wpps the omnicoms the dinsus uh publicists so forth and so on I mean, they, they are big corporations that are very much focused on, um, you know, quarterly results, like, like any other large Fortune 500 corporation. And so, you know, in those beginning days, the, thing, the number one thing that it, it gave us was the funding to build out the infrastructure and the technology that now drives most of, of Sparks and Honey. And it probably took us two years to really get uh, our, our uh, structure in place and our beginnings of the technology in place. As it related to clients, I mean, we were pretty far in advance of where the market was, as many startups are. I mean, we got a client, uh, you know, almost three months in, which was Estee Lauder. I mean, the president of Clinique, she signed on to work with Sparks Honey very early on. We did our launch in the New York Times, and I remember March 2012, uh, Stuart Elliott, then the, the, the person who covered uh, advertising and marketing for the Times, wrote a big article on the launch, and, and, and Lynn Green, who was the president of the Clinique, was featured. And that was, that was kind of the beginning. It took us almost two years to really be able to tap into the clients of Omnicom. And I think that was mostly because what we were doing was so novel and fresh. And probably around 2014, we got picked up by AdAge as one of the, the hot uh, companies to watch in the space. And that was kind of a, a, a turning point. It was a point at which there was now external validation to something that seemed like a little experiment that was going on. And uh, from that point forward, I think it really made a difference to be part of a holding company because it allowed us to tap into, you know, some of the biggest clients in the world. So eight, eight years is a long time in technology, right? It's a, you know, it's, it's a practical lifetime or several lifetimes in terms of the advancement. How, how have you been able to expand and realize your vision in ways that you never thought possible eight years ago? Mm. Yeah, such a great question. So, you know, when we first started, the, the idea was how do we understand what makes humans tick? How do we understand the shifts in consumer behavior um, and behavior in general at a societal level? And we did one thing in year one that is still with us today and it is fundamental to everything that we produce as Sparks and Honey. And that is we took the time to categorize culture. This was a very manual process that we built out a taxonomy. I don't even know in year one, I knew that it would become a taxonomy, but we built out this, this structure of megatrends and macrotrends and a definition of those so that we could categorize everything that we were seeing in culture. It was uh, the first step in trying to create uh, cultural quantification. That is now an underpinning of every single thing that we do, um, at, you know, at, at, from the tools that we have through the methodologies that we have. And we call that our elements of culture. It, it uh, has about 150 shifts that we monitor daily, and those shifts are, are automatically uh, quantified. Uh, what became of that uh, taxonomy, uh, number one, it became a method by which we created a common language across the organization, a common language across the clients that we work with, number one. Number two, it became a 
method that in the early days we could manually score and give us some kind of quantification, which I think is what was uh, severely missing in the trend and futurism space. Many people were bringing ideas because they had a, a gut instinct, but not a lot of quantification behind it. And that's what this, this method was, was bringing to the, to the system. Then we started building the technology around it. And that was an, another catalytic moment that allowed us to move this to scale, where we took that taxonomy and we built algorithms, artificial intelligence that could read that taxonomy, that could learn from the manual processes. So we, we fed the machine learning uh, with those manual processes that we had created and trained the machines to do what the humans do, but at scale. Uh, today, if you fast forward, we have a SaaS platform called Q. That platform could take in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of culturally relevant signals in a given day, can automatically score and cluster them against the elements of culture, and can allow us to do very, very robust analysis at scale. I probably couldn't have envisioned eight years ago, back to your original question, that it would evolve to that kind of, of scale and impact, probably because the data sources weren't as robust as they are today, and, and we just didn't have the sophistication of the algorithms. And I probably didn't know then that we were building the training language for AI, but that's what the first four years of Sparks and Honey allowed us to do, is take all that training and put that into the AI so you could do the same thing we did with 50 or 60 people, but at scale. Yeah, that's awesome. Really fascinating. So, um, you know, one of the one of the things I can only imagine and happening is that after a while, there becomes a, a sort of over exuberance and a little bit of overconfidence in the technology, and then suddenly, potentially, glitches start appearing because uh, the technology doesn't quite live up to its. You know, I always see with AI there are sometimes strange glitches that come up, and especially when you're talking about semantics. Mm -hmm. um, semantic parsing and and stuff like that where we are the good arbiters of meaning whereas machines have a little bit of a problem in uh, defining meaning yeah. uh, have you seen uh, have you seen some interesting glitches in that journey or has it been yeah. uh, well i mean the way, the way i would describe it is that i think that we we uh everything that we build is built around this trifecta so you have Big data, which is we're pulling in patent data, startup data, social media data, search data, influencer data, uh, all patents and so on, all being pulled in, into queue. And, and that's being done at scale. It's being quantified. It's being um, uh, shaped and we're identifying patterns, right? Then we have the second leg of, of that, which is human data. And I don't think it's any less important. And this is what helps us calibrate that system. Uh, one, we have scouts on a global basis. And those scouts are curious individuals that are capturing signals that may or may not be in digital, but are also helping us to recalibrate the system. We have an advisory board now that is 60 strong. We think of it as like our brain trust of vertical experts. We have people like Indra Nui, who is the CEO of PepsiCo, and Dr. Vivian Meaden, who is a well-known neuroscientist. And they're allowing us to see nuance in the vertical, but it's, it's human expert driven, which gets back to some more traditional research methodologies, which also calibrates the big data. And then the third leg of the stool is the strategists that take both the human and big data and translate that into frameworks uh, to make sense of it. And I think in the process of doing that, those strategists are able to see when something seems a little off, uh, the, the semantic engine didn't read it exactly right. You know, a, a good example, uh, and I'm sure we're gonna talk about this because we're living in a crazy time right now, is the tools calibrated prior to March 8th, and then what happened after March 8th with uh, COVID-19. and. You know, when we're doing an analysis, like everything post March 8th, which was kind of a major turning point at 8th to, to 12th, uh, in particular in the U.S., it reshaped all the data and, and it's very hard to, to extract that. So going back in time and looking at what the baseline was before and what, what has uh, uh, shifted since then is one of those anomalies that you, you have in data and, and you have to be able to scrub that out. Uh, and you do that by bringing in other methodologies. One interesting thing there, um, it's a little tangential, is early signaling. I mean, could you see this coming 
would we would did you have i mean because that's what people want like you if you're a you know if you're investing on wall street or if you're uh trying to build a business you want an early mover advantage um and especially with the case of this could you see anything indicative of the of that would uh, in january or uh, that would lead to what happened in in march 8 12th mm -hmm. um you know we started watching it once it uh, started unfolding in China and in Italy, and we were talking about it for, uh, I mean, quite some time before we reached that date of, of March 8th. And, 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 you know, if you follow what we've put out, I mean, we've, in, you know, two weeks, we've, maybe three weeks, we've generated six different uh, video briefings on the topic, uh, multiple uh, short uh, topic briefings. We're doing some pretty uh, substantial work with Fortune 100 clients on, on guiding them on what this, this reset will look like. So I think we were pretty far um, ahead, uh, but I don't think we had any idea of the scale, right? I mean, the scale, uh, this is, this is a, just something we didn't know. I mean, we've never lived through it. Uh, we've never had a crisis that's unfolded exactly like this. There, there's not great baselines. I mean, even if we go back in time and we look at, you know, previous pandemics or recessions or other things, this is kind of a perfect storm of a health crisis, a financial crisis, and a complete social cultural reset. And there's not too many um, parallels. And so I, I think we were way ahead in tracking it. Maybe not full clarity on the kind of scale and impact it was going to have on society. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it sort of it's sort of an interesting. It presents an interesting challenge for you, I think, a little bit. Um, but you know, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to tell you what to do, but I, I'm just throwing this thought out there. Um, potential black swans. 2015, Gates got up on stage and said, "This is going to happen." You know, mm -hmm. uh, everyone ignored him. And yeah. so, so I, it would be interesting to see if you would develop a, a sort of potential black swan, something you could do with your think tank, something you do with your 60 experts. Um, you know, we don't see them coming now, but what could they be? And, yeah. then, and, and then you'd be able to track if you saw any signals of like, oh, is this, is this what this guy said? Yeah, I'll give you, I mean, like this, I mean, this is different in that it's a, a, a pan, pandemic and, so forth and so on, but we have these kind of things that that we identify very often. And I was just talking to uh, you know a, a CMO of a, a client yesterday, and they were asking, "What are some examples of things that you have seen, but people didn't do anything with?" Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples. I think it's interesting. So probably two years ago, we were working with a large uh, beer company, and we saw. In this proposal was uh, all the analysis on hard seltzer and what was going to happen, you know, what was happening in that space. And some of the people in the industry saw it, some people didn't. Most of them did very little with it. And then last summer, you, you had the white claw phenomenon that, that happened. And it, I, most people in that industry would say it just caught them by surprise. I mean, it was a, it was a tidal wave of change in the industry. And I think sometimes you can see the things you can identify where it's going but number one you don't know how to activate it and number two um you you internal culture uh, gives you some permission some way to dismiss it i mean we saw the same thing with uh cannabis i mean we we wrote the first analysis now it's been like maybe 2014 uh we wrote a, a paper on the mainstreaming of marijuana before any kind of legal changes started to happen and you know we very very explicitly talked about what was happening in the uh, uh what could happen in in beauty and how it could uh, reformulate uh, with CBD and so forth and so on. And we had clients that were like, we just can't even talk about the topic. It's so taboo within our organizations. And then you fast forward to three, three years later and you have a major product lines that are, that are uh, redesigned within the category. And so there's a lot of examples of the identification of those early signals, the quantification of what the impact will be, but it also requires um, alignment of the stakeholders to to do something with those and actionable. We have many other examples where people have taken them and done amazing things with them, but those are just two where it's it's um, identified but not always actioned upon. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, back in the day when I was working in agency side and we had a massive uh, video game software company, they came to us and said, you know, can you use your strategy team to build out some kind of early warning uh, system to help us uh, identify potentially huge properties? Mm-hmm. Um, so we took gorillas to them uh, when they were just formed, you know, and said, look, you know, you need to get behind these guys. They're going to be massive. They're, they're digital, they're virtual, they're human. They're all kinds of blends of things, they're blends of music. And, um, you know, their response to us was uh, uh, music games have never sold well. 12 months later, Guitar Hero came out. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and that's the, the issue. And I have another story where we, uh, when I was at McCann, um, we took uh, a proposal to Coca Cola for sponsorship of global snowboarding, world snowboarding championships for 20 years. Uh, that they could have bought at a fraction of the cost that they paid for it five years later. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, 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 you, you know, you, I think whether you're internal or external and you're talking to people about the future, um, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's fine for you because you, you know, in a way you're providing services and those services are in demand and people want to know. Um, but they, there are people are, are very, um, risk averse and they even if they have the signal they they, they have a tough time um doing something with it which yeah. i think is fascinating just to as to why that is and um and what the what the, what is the process that's holding them back and um you know sort of when we got and we've got you know every single you know as you as an ex mckinsey do you have an ex mckinsey people called anything are they mckinseyites are they <laughs> i don't know um, yeah an ex McKinsey alum. Yeah, former McKinsey, McKinsey alumni. Yeah. McKinsey alumni. I mean, McKinsey writes paper after paper about, you know, now the time to take risk, now the time for disruption, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, you see the same sort of companies really struggling with uh, the uh, adapting. Let's yeah, go back. Adapting. I think it's also uh, prioritization, right? I think, I think what happens is. Uh, number one, most of these big corporations live in their vertical, yeah. so they're, they're not seeing the world from a horizontal standpoint. Uh, and number two, I think they, they generate these ideas and, and they just don't know what the priority is. So they place their bets and many times just out of comfort, we place our bets back on the things that have worked in the past, as mm-hmm. opposed to things that could, could completely disrupt or change uh, the future. And it takes, it takes pretty brave leaders to take those those bets sometimes so you know it, i think i think the infrastructure many times is stacked against uh some of those uh corporate leaders that need to take those those big bets yeah no that makes sense let's go back let, before we talk about the now let's go back and talk a little bit about uh process um what i thought was interesting is um you know maybe it's another as, as we talked about technology and your um uh, what eight years have done in terms of what you're capable of. Uh, what about humans and your talent? Um, what, you know, they were originally doing a lot of, there was a lot of manual um, stuff to be done, uh, sorting and searching. And now maybe there is more thinking um, mm-hmm. as, and the machines do the sorting and searching. In terms of talent, who are you, who are you looking for? Who are the types of people that you think are very successful at Sparks and Honey? So one of the things that we have done that we think is uh, somewhat different than other organizations is we truly believe in this idea of continuous learning. And, and I think we have built one of the, the, the best and strongest learning organizations um, out there. And what I mean with that is that we have built learning into every single day, the DNA of, of the company. So uh, we, you know, we hire for the skill that's required to do the job and we need to have uh, strategic thinkers. It's a, it's a strategy shop. So we're going to find people, but we don't find them from all the same places. I mean, we can find entrepreneurs. We can find people who have been planners. We can find people who uh, are, are coming from client side. We can find people, uh, you know, from management consulting, all those places kind of are amalgamation as Sparks and Honey. And what we believe is that if you are at Sparks and Honey, six months and you, we, and you are a part of this uh, learning organization that we've created, you are going to uh, 
ramp up and and build new skills that that, that you didn't have and and uh, in a very robust way uh, we think that you know the things that we want to look for in individuals are empathy so having an uh, empathy toward uh, the way the world works and where it's going number two uh, curiosity that you are not only curious in the way you approach your work, but everything you do outside of work. I mean, you put a huge premium on the passions and the things people do in their side gigs and side hustles and all of that. And lastly, resilience, that, that you know, we're working in a world that is looking at change. And so to, to be good in the world of change, you have to be resilient. We kind of feel like if you have those three qualities, we can train almost everything else because uh, skills are not point in time learned, they're continuously learned. So a good example is every single day at Sparks and Honey, we do something called a daily culture briefing, where we bring together um, the entire company, not, not a few people in the company, but every single person in the company for one hour, and we unpack what's happened in the previous 24 to 48 hours in culture. And so the first 20 minutes of that session is basically at the horizontal, meaning we want to do what algorithms do and we want to identify patterns across things that would typically not be connected together so we're going to jump from blogs to reddit to fashion to climate change to something coming out of darpa and looking at to see where we make those connection points the back 40 is always topic focused and it could be on social activism it could be on you know the new world of leisure generation z so forth and so on and we everyone in the company is dissecting those trends. The algorithms have helped us narrow the world into the trends we look at, and then the humans come together and unpack them in real time, looking for nuances, this dance between uh, human and machine. And that process is an incredible training process that every single day you're flexing your muscle of pattern identification, of um, understanding new emerging patterns and trends in the marketplace and going deep on one specific topic. You know, on any given day, we can have uh, experts that we, that we also bring in that are outside of Sparks and Honey to help illuminate the particular topic. And the uh, setup is like uh, a studio. So we bring, you know, anywhere from 20 to 100 people in from the outside that watch uh, this discussion on a daily basis. And then we live stream the discussion to LinkedIn, YouTube, and to Facebook. And so the people who are watching it remotely can also ask questions and, and uh, kind of challenge what they're seeing in real time. That process is one, just one of the ways that, that we've kind of built this learning organization that kind of keeps you on your toes. It kind of pushes you to think outside the box, to, to really edge dwell on a daily basis. And, and examine uh, all different aspects of culture. So, you know, I, I think having um, a, a ethos or in your DNA, this, this idea of learning, learning never stops. And learning is not something that you send someone to, you don't send them, yeah, you can go to a conference and learn, but if you can build a system that allows you to learn every day, it's going to change, number one, the kind of people that you hire, but I think also the refinement of the skill sets of the people that, that are working on the outputs that you're producing. So just, just take me through a little bit. If, if someone has been working for you for four months and they're in this daily uh, conference, are they allowed to speak? How does it work? I've got an idea or is it because they're vertical experts or they're working in a vertical, you just go around, okay, Joe, you're on fashion. What are you seeing? Or is it, is it a more of a free for all? It's definitely a free for all. So imagine if you can just imagine the way it's set up, there's two people in front of the room that are uh, the briefers and they, all they're really there to do is to set up the uh, signals, whatever those signals are. There's a table of cast members. So if you're on the cast, you are definitely going to speak because you, um, you, you're kind of like the, the key cast for the day. And then you're surrounded by a studio audience. But it's set up where anyone in the entire studio audience can talk at any time. And, and you're, going to, you're going to have a CEO who's making comments and you're going to have an intern. It's, it's really democratized that, that anyone has a voice. And there's a couple of things that are created in the environment in that it's a, it's a non-judgment zone, meaning that we're not there to debate we're there to understand right we want to take a signal 
um, like the Modern Family or the Gender Continuum or whatever it is, uh, digital detox versus constant connection and technology. And we want to understand all sides of it. And I'm not there if you make a comment to tell you that you're right or wrong. I'm there to understand where that's coming from. And that's kind of the format. Therefore, it from day one, as long as you find your comfort in speaking in that kind of environment, you can begin to, to participate. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So um, let's talk about now. Like, so what, what, what is happening? <laughs> what, what the hell is happening right now? Um, in terms of what you're, you're seeing, what have, what have your uh, culture briefings, have they been dominated by what we're going through um, in the last two weeks, three weeks? Yeah, so uh, they have been. Uh, two weeks ago, we shifted the format. So we've all gone to remote work, as most people um, have. And we went to remote briefings, which is going really well, where we um, do exactly the same format, but it's in a remote format. And all of the topics have been on COVID-19. So we have looked at the cultural angle every single day, different aspects of what's happening with the crisis to try to unpack where we are in the here and now. We were kind of thinking about it as, as follows that, the now is, you know, we're pretty much in crisis mode, right? We're trying to, um, number one, take care of our families, take care of our health, take care of our employees, make sure that people are safe, so forth and so on. And we're asking questions about well-being and the way we uh, function and, and relationships. I think the next of this is um, really honing in on what's, what's going to shift and, and why is it shifting? And what does that mean to me? What does that mean to my employees? What does that mean to the products that I put out in the marketplace? And then I think where we eventually get to is what we are calling the great reset. I mean, this is a, uh, an impact on, it's a kind of this three things coming together. It's health crisis, a financial crisis, and a social um, tidal wave of change. And the Great Reset is going to be build a new normal, a, a, a new way to, to operate. And so, you know, as we deal with the first two, and I would say most clients that are coming to us, we're, you know, some are still just in the reaction crisis mode. Some have moved to, okay, but we know now that we've gotten that our day-to-day kind of stabilized, we know we're going to come out of it. So what's going to shift? And we haven't had too many yet, but I think we will in very short order. So what does this new normal look like and how do we operate in a new way? And I think in that new normal, there's two parts of it. One is a new normal that has kind of a um, uh, rebounding kind of side to it. I mean, like, you know, how long is it going to take for the economy to come back? Are there going to be industries that are, that don't come back at all and that completely reshifts? And the other side is, have we built new habits, new behaviors that are better? And can we not um, dismiss those and can we capitalize on those as we plow forward over the next 12, 24, 36 months? Yeah, so I mean, it, you know, the obvious thing that's kind of pretty interesting is, you know, you know, you're switching everything to Zoom. Zoom stock's gone the way of Tesla. Um, I just picked up... Um, some news that there's a new Zoom online dating platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it seems that, that what's really interesting is everyone from the most junior employee to the CEO is now in sort of a bunker mode and uh, we're all going through this thing together. So it presents a really interesting opportunity for people like you guys to sort of say, okay, to decipher what is going on. So it makes sense, you know, having services and whether it's uh, strategists, whether it's people doing insights, it seems that their role is more timely than ever and more important than ever, because, you know, let's face it, if, you're, if you've been selling uh, laundry detergents for 25 years and you've done, um, you know, 5,000 focus groups and you've got everything dialed in, you kind of know what's happening. You, you, yeah, yeah, there are signals, there are changes. And, um, but this is sort of fundamental and, and big. And as you said, uh, great reset is, a, yeah. is the right kind of level of language. Um, you know, do you think, 
um, that this 20, 20 week zoom training course is going to, is, is going to, is going to impact, um, things like how we do business, whether we travel, don't travel and all, all those things, uh, what conferences look like. I mean, that seem those seem to me some obvious potential yeah. impacts. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like in the near term, I mean, I think this, this, um, there's very few times where on a global basis, we have a tidal wave of change that gets us all aligned to doing one set of new behaviors. And that, that's kind of what's happening here. So if you, we just use your example of everyone going to remote work, that's a, that's in more of a professional or educational type environment. I mean, schools, colleges, K through 12, as well as corporations are all using those technologies. And that will reset many things. I was talking to a, a business leader the other day who said he, he envisions this is going to be the, the great reset to restructuring of corporate office space where people realize that, you know, you really only need that office space to come together periodically. You need conference rooms, you need places to, you know, uh, meet with clients, so forth and so on. But the day-to-day -day work can happen completely remote. And, and this idea of we went from offices to cubicles, and now maybe this is the, the uh, last wave, which pushes, pushes us to work from home the majority of time that is completely uh, tech-enabled. I mean, no, those things are, are real possibilities. I mean, another thing that we've been talking a lot about in the last uh, couple of weeks is just so social distancing versus mental health. So as we think about uh, protecting ourselves from health because of the pandemic, but we also have isolation. We have loneliness that, that skyrockets. We have people who are older who are living alone. We have singletons that are living alone. And what is the impact on their, their social health? What's the impact of being in a small New York apartment or with, with five or six other people for a long period of time when you're not used to that and not having those traditional outlets? So those are, those are just shifts that, that are happening and there, there's a pro and con on both sides. The last, the, the other one that, that I've been thinking a lot about, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, a colleague from DARPA the other day and they were we, were, we were just talking about the baselines. How do you think about uh, COVID-19, this pandemic, and what do you compare it to? Do you compare it to other pandemics? Do you compare it to 9-11? Do you compare it to recessions? And they were talking about the scenario models that they created for the Department of Defense looking at things like this. They said the one thing that we know is that um, duration matters a lot. So there is, um, and, and the amount of, I guess, pain that, that consumers feel on a global basis, one, that definitely has an impact on the economy, it has an impact on the reset of these categories, but it also has an impact on the, on the human psyche. And if this goes on long enough, um, it also binds us together on a global basis, unlike we've been bound. Because when we have a common enemy that isn't each other, that isn't a political party, that isn't the trolls and social, um, it can rewire the way we think about uh, showing up in society. So, you know, there's, there's one consideration in a world that has become incredibly polarized, divided, divisive, driven by political discourse, which is not positive, driven by uh, hate that is rising in social channels and so forth and so on. Can a common enemy create a healing effect? Can there be a moment in time because of this tidal wave, because of the impact on global scale, that it gave us something else to point at and rally around as opposed to where we've been. I don't know if that's gonna be the case, but it's definitely something that we're watching and we're trying to, to map it against other baselines. And the one that this person used when we were talking about that scenario is what happened during World War II. Like going back that far is something that galvanized people to a common enemy on a global scale and reshifted uh, many sectors coming out of that war. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that could be quite interesting is um, when does it become normal? How quickly do we normalize? And we, you know, we establish patterns of behavior and, and we live with it. You know, humans are brilliant at uh, adapting. And so, um, you know, that's one side of it. Um, another side of it is 
let's have some empathy for some people who've lived those types of things like this. People in the Balkans, people in Syria, they've been under siege. You know, we think we're the only people who've lived like this. But yeah, it's not true. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that hopefully um, there are people out there who've uh, who lived through uh, these type of times, actually even worse in a way. Um, and would be fascinating if we could learn from some of their experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I'm, I'm very interested in is the sort of what's when, 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 when the prisoners sort of use a bad metaphor, prisoners are released from prison um, is, do we have euphoria? Do we have, you know, 24 hours of drinking? Do we have the time Times square scenes uh, of the end of second world war? Uh, how, or do we have this, well, I want to do that, but hang on a minute. Is it safe? Yeah. So I think that's going to be really fascinating to see yeah. how, how, that, how that maps out. Because naturally you would assume when the bar is open and they're open for business that uh, the, <laughs> the business is going to come in wave after wave. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to, to look at and watch for because I'm sure a bunch of people who believe they could capitalize on that if, yeah. uh, if you're Anheuser-Busch and people have been sort of restricted to drinking only at home and suddenly your, your on-premise locations are open, what do you do? How do yeah. you handle it? How do you celebrate it? Um, yeah. So I, I, think that, I think that's a, a potentially really, really interesting thing. Yeah, if you think about like cabin fever, I mean, like you, you, you have cabin fever on a, on a global scale, this pent up demand for all these things that, that we have not had. So people are going to come back in the side of I think in particular people that are younger, um, because this has hit them in a different way than people that are probably 60 plus, there might be some more caution with that particular group than there will be. I mean, we, we already saw it play out in, in different behaviors. But I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, you can only go so many weeks um, and, and removing all of these things and being in your own, your own small prison, a prison by choice, and, and you're going to come back and you're going to have, uh, it's, it's going to be a tidal wave of wanting to break out and do all those things again. When, when, you, when you think of, um, when you guys are looking at um, health uh, and you know, using the word resilience, do you think you're going, we're going to see a new behaviors around? I, what do I need to do? I, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm astonished. I live a block from Prospect Park and um, we've got a second running boom going on. I mean, people who literally have not run in their lives are running now. Mm-hmm. I know the police is going to stop it. It's going to just be a matter of days. Yeah. But I find it fascinating. I'm a, I'm a big runner. I've been running since I was 15 years old. Um, and uh, I, I find it fascinating. What, what's the psychology behind this? Do, do they believe they, uh, is, it, is it an outlet that you just got to get out of the house? Is it uh, protection? Is it, uh, I, if I do get fit, I might be <laughs> more protected. Um, yeah. be, I mean, it's very interesting to sort of unpack and dissect that as to, as to so what's going on there. So I think the health thing is going to be really interesting is, uh, is uh, immunology, is uh, the science of the immune system, is what I can do to eat to, you know, yeah, we've always had people who've talked about ACEs and elderberries and all that other stuff, but now does it take on a new dimension? Because, you know, um, a, a, I think a big part of this is this understanding that what happens in winter and you know what I mean? Like this idea that it's not, it's this, it's like a horror movie. It is like a horror movie. The, the, bogey, the bogey man comes back, you know, just when you think he's gone away, you know, with, with the ax and the hatchet, he, he hasn't, he's back. And uh, so, you know, I think that's going to have profound implications on, on, on what people do around their health and what they eat and, you know, how they try and build, build resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that it's, it's a reset with our, our health, our hygiene, how we, I mean, it's just, you know, we, we've all uh, received a, uh, an education um, <laughs> about our own bodies and, and the way we interact. I mean, you know, you go, if you go to a store now, I mean, everything's being wiped down. It's just like, like that's going to stick with us for a while. And I think it's, you're probably, I mean, just as you said, you're seeing people 
uh, try to take care of themselves in a, in a different way because when you feel like it could be taken away from you very quickly, you it, it, it uh, creates new new behaviors. The question would just be that how long do we maintain those behaviors before sliding back into traditional patterns? That's a really interesting question, yeah. I mean, you know, built on that point, again, looking globally, I was having a conversation with somebody who's been uh, working in insights and strategy for probably 25 years in Asia um, earlier in the week. And he said, look, you know, if you're Unilever, you've been telling people how to wash their hands for 10 years because it's a life and death issue out here. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's knowledge, there's, there's information, there's resources that those guys have been doing for years um, with those populations that apply to us right now. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, anything else? Any, uh, any, anything you, uh, you think is uh, a little outliers that are surprising you? Um, no, I mean, another thing that we're, we're just also watching is, you know, this, this tension between uh, surveillance and, and privacy. You know, yeah. like how much are we willing to let government and other institutions uh, collect data on us? GPS data, facial recognition data, DNA analysis, your, your, your precision, your biological data. And it, because we're in a heightened moment of need, it seems very uh, like, a, like a positive. And, and there probably are, there's many reasons to do it. On the flip side, uh, what gets done with that data down the road, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, um, are we infringing upon people's uh, uh, privacy rights and, and what does that mean from a long-term standpoint? And when you look at governments like, like you, know, you, you referenced in, in Asia, I mean, in, in particular China, who they pretty much can um, d- use biological data and put those things in place very quickly at scale it, it gives them an outweighed advantage in a pandemic, whereas in the U.S. or definitely in Europe, we, we have a, a very different uh, relationship with, with privacy and, and how to use um, uh, data. So I think that's just another thing that's playing out, and it's, and it's emphasizing this, this notion of what belongs to us as individuals, what should corporations and governments be able to capture and how should they use it and what is the regulatory body that, that governs that i think you know we've been caught up a lot in this world of social media data whereas really the the next frontier is biological data and how we maneuver through this world of biological data yeah i mean i think that's i think that's fascinating and and, and, and you know i think there's a really interesting conversation around your data as to what you were seeing pre-March 8th around regulating the technology companies and breaking them apart. And we're, we're, you know, they're too powerful, they're too dominant. And, you know, they're going to get away with it because everyone's going to say, you know, well, you know, these guys were pretty important to us. They're pretty essential. You know, we, we needed what they did. You know, we were using them all the time. And and um, I wonder if that, you know, I wonder if they bought themselves a pass, uh, which I think is, in, which could be an interesting uh, outcome of what we've been through, because, you know, th- there was a sort of vilification of a lot of those players and, and, a, and a call for regulation, a call for like, breaking up the monopoly, uh, monopolies, duopolies. Um, and I think that might not, I think that might go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think is a you know an, an, an interesting outcome because we we're just so re- reliant on it. Um, I was just talking to somebody in London saying, you know, you've got all these um, wholesalers who can't sell to restaurants anymore because there's no restaurants to sell to, or the restaurants they want to sell to aren't open. So they got to flip their business model, and they they're doing it all on Facebook. You know, they don't mm-hmm. know they don't know how else to do it. <laughs> they got a Facebook page. I just tell someone we're selling fish directly from our Facebook page, not to concert to restaurants. You can buy our fish now. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think, I think that there's going to become a, a recognition that, of how important those platforms are. Um, and that, that issue around privacy and dominance may, uh, may change. Mm-hmm. So good. We talked about a lot. Yeah, we did. 51 minutes in, it's pretty good. 
Um, anything else? You, anything else you think we missed or didn't? No, I mean, great, great conversation. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's definitely we're living in some uncharted territory, and uh, you know, we're 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 taking it one day at a time. We're using our tools to to unpack it. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see how, how it unfolds over the next three to four months. I mean, I, I just hope that we see some, some, uh, changes prior to Labor Day. I think if this goes further than that, it could really, uh, create some long-term, uh, impact. I think we, we've got to get, get this resolved in the next couple of months. Economic challenges become significant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Going back to your culture briefings, uh, do you still have a studio audience? Is that still accessible, uh, or is it sort of if you taken that part of it away? Given yeah, that part of it is away. We're we're completely remote. The briefings are completely remote. Um, anyone listening to your podcast can uh, check them out Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. They're on LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and you can uh, uh, discuss live. We're taking in people's questions. We're pulling those into. Um, other briefings, uh, the questions that people are asking are helping us formulate what those topics are. The last six have all been on COVID-19, and I would imagine at least the next three to six will continue to be on that because that is the, the topic that we're all trying to, to figure out uh, in, you know, like what is going to shift? What are those cultural tension spaces? How do we begin to resolve them? How do we begin to reset to this new normal? Yep. Well, that's great. That's uh, awesome that anyone who's listening uh, has the opportunity to to, uh, to to learn from what you guys are up to on a on a on a regular basis. So that's that's great. Um, thank you again. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for your time. Thank you for your for a great conversation, and uh, wishing you the best for uh, for whatever however long we're in this uh, this situation. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thanks so much. Take care. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.